Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. What is your favourite thing about Christmas? And I'm going to make a little rule, okay? You don't have to say thinking about the real meaning of Christmas, okay? You can be honest, you can say something a bit more superficial, and we are okay with that. How many people love food? Yeah, yeah, it's not a trick, I love food. How many people love presents? I love presents. Okay, this is, this is weird. Like, uh, in my house, we're all in on presents. I love giving presents. Even more than that, I love getting presents. I love opening it. I love new stuff. And we have a thing that we do with Christmas presents. I don't know if you have the same, but you'll, you'll get a gift. Let's take this one, for instance. This will do. do. Do you try and work out what's in them before you open them? Yeah, yeah. A, a, a bit of shaking, a bit, a bit of smelling, maybe. Of working out the size. And we'll always... Um, Put ludicrous suggestions, so you get something like this, and uh, somebody in our family will go, oh yeah, that's definitely a fishing rod. Really? Oh, it's a, it's a football. No, it isn't a football. And these are the kind of suggestions that come. And I, I've got pretty good, I think, at predicting what is in presents. Most of the time I could nail it. This one's just an empty box, by the way. Uh, so don't try ripping these open. You'll be very disappointed. All that is a nice display. But every once in a while, I get caught off guard. Every once in a while, on my Christmas presents, there's something that isn't quite what I'm expecting. That how it looks on the outside doesn't quite match the reality of what's going on in there. And when we look at the, the story, the Christmas story, that can be the same way. Sometimes what you're expecting from the outside isn't quite what you see when you look underneath and see what's really going on. And I I want us to to look at the story today. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read uh, a chunk of it that you often get read at this time of year. So that's when the Magi turn up and worship the baby Jesus. But I'm going to keep reading. We're going to read a bit of it that you don't often get at this time of the year as well. And the question is going to be around the king. Who is the king? We've sung about the king of Israel this morning, who is the king? Or as the Magi put the question at the start of the chapter, where is the one who is the king of the Jews? And we're going to think about, well, who who is this king? Where will they be born? And what kind of king will they be? And it might not be what we would first expect. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read all of Matthew 2 to you. And I want you to pay attention as I'm reading it to who are the characters in this chapter And how are they referred to as the chapter goes on? And does it change? Does the way they are referred to in this chapter change? So you need to do a bit of active listening as I read. Okay with that? So Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. 
But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Did you spot the characters? Did you spot who were the contenders, the candidates for this title of king? There should be two. Who are they? King Herod and... Jesus. Okay, let's think about both of them. Herod, what do we know about him? Let me give you a bit of history. In 37 BC, he was given the title King of Judea, often referred to as King of the Jews. That was his job title, given by the Roman Senate as a reward for being loyal to Rome during the Parthian War. He was mates with very, very powerful people. Caesar Augustus, Mark Antony, these powerful people you've heard of in the Roman Empire. King Herod was their mate, and King of the Jews was his title. He's not going to be happy, is he, when these guys come up and say, so, right, King of the Jews, where is he? Don't mean you, mate. He's not going to be very happy about this. This is uh, something that would get under his skin a little bit. Did you notice what he's called in this chapter? Did you notice what he's called in verse 1? He's called King Herod. Did you notice what he's called in verse 3? 
King Herod. Did you notice what he's called in verse 9? The king. And then do you notice what he's called from that moment on for the rest of the chapter? Verse 13, verse 15, verse 16, verse 19, verse 22. He's called Herod, 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 Herod. He moves over the course of this chapter from being King Herod into being Herod. And what's the significant event that happens after the last time he's called the king? Well, Jesus appears on the scene. The Magi come. They find this kid in the manger. And from that moment forward, King Herod is not King Herod anymore. He's just bloke Herod. Guy down the pub Herod. Normal old Herod. He's been de-kinged. He's been demoted. And he's been dethroned by what's going on. This is really important. Anyone in here who's ever had a nightmare boss or ever had an oppressive civil leader in a place that you're living or ever had a dominant family member will know how it seems. It will seem that power can be absolute. It will seem that someone's in charge and nobody can do anything about it. There's no challenge to their authority. And part of what the Christmas story does is it knocks the edge off that power. In Luke's telling of the story, there's Mary singing a song of praise to God in this moment. And one of the lines in her song is, he's brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. What Luke does through song and poetry, Matthew does in the story by making King Herod into plain old Herod. Now he's still there, he's still doing bad things, and yet his authority is gone. This story is a warning to the toxic leaders out there that your power is limited, your power is temporary. There's someone now on the scene to whom you will have to give account for the way you use your power. That's contender number one. Who's contender number two for the kingship? It's Jesus. And did you notice what Jesus is called throughout this chapter? The child. In verse one, it uses the name Jesus. But then for the whole rest of the chapter, verse two, verse eight, verse nine, verse 11, verse 13, verse 13 again, verse 14, verse 20, verse 20 again, and verse 21, it's the child, the child, the child, the child, the child. He wants it to stick in our head that we're talking about a child. And I was thinking about why. Why would he do this? Why would he refer to Jesus in this way? I think part of it might be the absolute contrast with Herod. So Herod, with his murderous intent, and by emphasising Jesus was just a child, don't we see the absolute innocence? There's a difference. We also, by thinking about him as a child, we're drawn to his powerlessness, his lack of agency. It feels like everything is so fragile and so vulnerable when we're talking about a child. I was chatting with someone last weekend who talked about the the absolute guilt that they feel in parenting. Because when you're a parent and you've got someone so vulnerable and so dependent on you, you can have this feeling of, oh my goodness, like this is really a, a moment of uh, vulnerability of responsibility on me. I want to make sure everything is okay because this little one can't do anything for themselves. And it's an emphasis, perhaps, on the vulnerability and the fragility of the moment. But I wonder as well if there are certain things he wants us to think about, certain uh, associations with other bits of the Bible. You know that verse that often gets quoted at this time of year, that prophecy in Isaiah where it says this, 
For a child has been born to us. A son has been given to us. And authority rests upon his shoulders. I wonder if by saying the child, he's trying to make us think, ah, that promise, that prophecy, everything will be okay. Because God's going to give a child, and now authority won't be on the shoulders of someone like Herod. Authority will be on the shoulders of him. There is now hope. Or maybe he's trying to do a little hyperlink. You know, like um, you go on Wikipedia, those bits in blue where if you click it, it takes you to something connected to it. Maybe he's trying to hyperlink us to another story. You might have noticed in what I read, Matthew loves his Old Testament. He quoted it a whole bunch of times. And this story that he tells, it sounds a lot like the story at the beginning of the Exodus. So back at the beginning of the Exodus, you had the people, they were enslaved. You had a mad king who felt threatened and so went on this rampage killing baby boys. That's exactly what we see here. And that's exactly what we see at the start of the Exodus story. And if you look at Exodus 2, do you notice the way that the kid, is Moses in this case, is referred to as one boy manages to escape. And it's the child, the child, the child, the child, the child, the child, the child. I wonder if he's trying to echo it and make us think, ah, this story is like that story. This child is going to grow up and God's going to use them to bring salvation and deliverance and rescue for the people. I wonder if he wants us to see that. So who is the king of the Jews? Is it the king, Herod, or is it the child, Jesus? Well, we don't actually get the answer to that question until right at the end of Matthew. The phrase king of the Jews is used here in chapter 2, and it doesn't come up again until chapter 27. So right near the end, there's only 28 chapters in the book. And this is when Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, and then the governor asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you say so. But they return to the question right at the end. And in the middle, you've got 24 chapters of not mentioning the phrase, but building the case that he is the answer to that question, that he is the king, that he does have the authority. And next term, you're going to be digging into Matthew's gospel. You're going to be seeing this case made, seeing his teaching articulated and expressed, seeing his kindness and compassion and care for those in need, seeing his power and his miraculous activities that he does in the name of God. And you'll see the clear answer, yes, 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 he is the king of the Jews. Now I think you're cheating a bit this morning because it's Christmas and you're in church, so you already knew this, right? You already knew where it was going. I don't think anyone in here was like, well, it's obviously Herod, isn't it? He's the real king. Like, you've come here, you, you know. It's like, it's like watching the film again when you already know the twist at the end. And you're like, yeah, I know where this is going. And yet, and yet, it can be so easy for us to forget it when we go out of those doors and into life. It can be so easy to still think that real power lies with the Herod figures of today. The politicians, the kings, the business leaders, we can think they're the ones who carry the real sway. They're the ones who have real authority and real power. And we miss the fact that this child has been given and true authority is on his shoulders. Who is the king? I want to link into a second question then. Where will the king appear? Where would you expect him to be? 
And, and just go with me on this. Uh, if I was to do a thought experiment with you and say to you, right, I want you to meet a person and they live somewhere else and I'm going to give them the same instructions that I give you and if you can meet them in France next Saturday, you'll get a million pounds each. But that's all you're getting. You've got to meet them next Saturday in France. And that's it. And you can't find each other on the internet. You don't know who the other person is. They've got the same instructions that you've got. What would you do? Exactly. In my notes here, it says Eiffel Tower. James has nailed it. He hasn't looked at the notes because it's obvious, isn't it? If you know that they're going to be somewhere in France, well, where are they going to go? They're going to go to Paris, the big capital city. They're not going to go to some random village in the sticks. And when they're in Paris, where are they going to go? The most notable, the most famous, the biggest place. And when are you going to go there? I mean, you'd probably be there all day if there's a million quid at stake, but you'd probably say midday, right? That's the obvious time. Midday, Eiffel Tower, because it's, it's obvious, it's prominent, it's the place that you would expect them to be. And these magi, when they know that God is going to come to earth, where's the place they'd expect? Where's the equivalent of the Eiffel Tower? Where's the obvious place he'd come? Well, it's obviously going to be Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the big city. Jerusalem, the capital of the region. Jerusalem, where politics is driven from, where economics is driven from, where the temple is, the centre of spiritual life. If God's going to send his king to earth, it's obviously going to be Jerusalem, right? And maybe they were thinking about Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60 is a prophecy that speaks of a day when Jerusalem becomes like this beehive of prosperity, where it becomes a centre of international trade. And it says this, convoys of camels will come from Asia, bringing gold and frankincense. Does that sound familiar? Christmas time, say, like, ah, oh, gold, frankincense, ding, ding, yeah, I know that one. And these magi would have known it as well. They'd have known this story, they'd have known this verse, and they thought, we can act out the script. We can do what it says. We'll get on our camels, we'll get our golden frankincense, we'll go to Jerusalem, we can play our part. They're expecting to find a new king of peace and prosperity in a place like Jerusalem. And they get there and they show up, and Herod hears what they've got to say. And he's like, I don't really know anything about this. I need to upskill. I need to get a bit more theologically minded. So he gets all these brainy theologians in, his scribes and his priests. He's like, right, what's going on? King of the Jews, where's he going to be born? Where will the Messiah be? Where will the Christ be? Maybe he was expecting them to say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's Jerusalem, Isaiah 60 and all that. But they don't. They quote a different prophet instead. They quote the prophet Micah, who names a very different kind of place which says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. That's where he'll come, this little town of Bethlehem, this backwater, this ignored little place that nobody was paying attention to, not the big city that everyone is drawn to. Walter Brueggemann writes about this. I think this is absolutely brilliant, uh, this kind of comparison he makes. He says, when you focus on Isaiah 60 it'll mislead you because it suggests that Jerusalem will prosper and have great urban wealth and be restored as the centre of the global economy. And in that scenario, the urban elites can recover their former power and prestige and nothing will really change. Instead, they head for Bethlehem 
a rural place, dusty, unnoticed and unpretentious. It is, however, the proper milieu for the birth of the one who will offer an alternative to the arrogant learning of intellectuals and the arrogant power of urban rulers. This is the story of two human communities, Jerusalem with its great pretensions and Bethlehem with its modest promises. And which one does the Son of God come into? Not the place where everyone's looking, where everyone thinks is obvious and prominent, but to the place down the road, ignored, overlooked, simple, down to earth. I think there's something really powerful here, something challenging here, isn't there? Because there are some places in our world where everyone's looking, where people are, are getting the best education possible, where the arts are thriving, where politics are driven from. They make the decisions that affect everybody else, where the economy is thriving, where there are loads of jobs, where there are trendy places to live and to eat and to work and to socialise and, dare I say, it's plant churches as well. There are places like that. And there, there are other places, aren't there, that are forgotten. Did you see, recently, a, a politician was describing the town of Stockton in the northeast and uh, was describing the lack of businesses there, the lack of jobs there, uh, the low life expectancy. Uh, and he used a word to describe it that I, I feel I probably shouldn't repeat in church, but it was a derogatory term about a place like Stockton. But what he was getting at is it's a place that, in, in his view, nobody would want to live. Nobody would want to invest in a place like that. It can feel forgotten. A friend of mine described another a similar sort of place as where hope goes to die. It was that kind of town. And that's the vibes that we get from Bethlehem. A couple of weeks ago, a few of us went up to North Manchester to visit a church in one of the most deprived wards of our city. And it was just really, really moving to see uh, how God had worked over decades in that place. But what a need there was there. And it just filled me with faith that when God moves in power, it's not always where we'd expect. God can move in places like that that are totally off the radar of many of us. But his power will work there. And the Christmas story, it warns us not to get caught up in the way of looking at things that everyone else has, drawn to the big, drawn to the impressive. Because it's not the great city of Jerusalem to which the Lord came. It's the little town of Bethlehem in an unobtrusive barn. So who will be the king? The child or Herod? Where will he come? The little town or the great city? And finally, what kind of king will he be? Just because he was born in a barn in Bethlehem doesn't guarantee he'd be a good king, right? Because throughout history, there have been many dictators and despots who've been born away from centres of power. In itself, that's not enough. But in these verses, Matthew also shows us not just who would be king and where they'd be from, but what kind of king it would be. And we've got a contrast, haven't we? On the one hand, you've got Herod and this awful scene. It's called the Massacre of the Innocents when he orders every baby boy near Bethlehem to be slaughtered. He shows a kind of way to be a ruler. He wields power, he's ruthless, he's bloodthirsty. He'll do whatever it takes to cling on to his position and power. He feels threatened, and so he doesn't care who's going to suffer because he needs to hold his position, like Pharaoh before him in the Exodus story, and like so many kings and politicians and rulers who have come since. 
There's something about power, isn't there? And they say power corrupts. I think they're absolutely right. I don't know, did, did any of you hear about the Stanford Prison Experiment? This was done in 1973 by a scientist called Philip Zimbardo. What he did is he got 24 volunteers and said, I'm going to run an experiment in a prison and I'm going to randomly divide you up. 12 of you get to be prisoners, 12 of you get to be guards. And the prisoners are going to be in harsh conditions. It'll be three to a cell. Um, You'll have basically whatever the guards say goes. The guards were on shifts. They could go home when they weren't there. They had good working conditions, a nice common room, all of that stuff. And they wanted to see how these guards would react to being put in a position of power over other people. These are just everyday people from the street, ordinary people And within hours, the first night, 2.30 a.m., they're blowing their whistles, they're waking the prisoners up in their sleep to line them up and do counts and roll calls. They're speaking to the prisoners in derogatory terms, they're insulting them, they're arbitrarily making them do push-ups, and then as some of them are doing the push-ups, they're standing on their back and forcing them down to the ground. Eventually, the prisoners kicked off a bit and rebelled about the treatment they were getting. So so the guards would get, like, fire extinguishers and fire them into the cells as a way of quelling the rebellion. And then as punishment for rebelling, they would deny the prisoners clothing, so then they were uh, in their cells naked. They would deny them beds, so they had to sleep on the floor. And they would deny them food, so they couldn't eat. They would force them to clean toilets with their bare hands, And the scientist who ran the experiment had planned that he was going to do this for for two weeks and monitor the results. After six days, he had to shut down the experiment because of the excess brutality shown by the guards. Ordinary people given a taste of power for six days and look what they did. Is it a surprise then? that we see rulers and kings giving unchecked, unlimited power for as long as they can hold it. Is it any surprise that we see kings and rulers do what kings and rulers do? Frank Herbert, the author of Dune, speaks of leaders who have a tendency to become drunk on violence, a condition to which they're quickly addicted. So that's one kind of king, and we've seen plenty of those in the world. But we get a hint that we've got a different kind of king. He's not coming to be a king like all the others. Jesus will be different. Did you notice that quotation in verse 6? The prophecy from Micah that we referred to earlier about Bethlehem. Well, let me show you what it says in Micah. So this is the original. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. That's what he says in the original, but when Matthew quotes it, do you notice what's different here? But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That seems a bit of a change, doesn't it? Like you're quoting it, but you're also giving a a spin on it, You're, you're remixing it, you're adding something to it. And what he adds actually comes from another Old Testament book to Samuel, if we could uh, move on. This is, you will shepherd my people Israel and become their ruler. And he takes these two and he mashes them up into one. And the reason he wants to do that is he wants to emphasise, I say he will be a ruler, 
then don't you dare think I'm talking about a ruler like Herod. Don't you dare think I'm talking about someone who will abuse their power. Don't you dare think I'm talking about someone who would slaughter these kids. That's not what I've got in mind. It's a different kind of ruler. You've got to know that this king who's coming will be a shepherd. He will be kind. He will be gentle. He will be caring. He will be compassionate. He wants them to see it's not just a king who will oppress, but a good shepherd who will care for the flock. That it's not a butcher who will go after every baby boy to put them to the sword, but a redeemer who will go after every lost sheep to tenderly bring them back to the flock. It's not a strong man who sees others as expendable commodities to hold on to his own power, but it's the Son of God who made himself nothing and laid down his own life going to the cross for those that he calls the sheep of his fold. So who will be the king? Herod or this child? It'll be the child. Where will he be born? The big city of Jerusalem or the little town of Bethlehem? It'll be the little town. And what, what kind of king will he be? A despot, a dictator, addicted to his own power? No, it'll be a good shepherd who lays himself down. That's the Christmas story. And it's beautiful, isn't it? Just as I was prepping, I just had the sense that this morning, some of us need the encouragement of the gentle shepherd. That maybe we're too used to power being wielded in ways akin to how Herod used his power. But Jesus is different. He says, a bruised reed I will not break and a faintly burning wick I will not extinguish. He can draw near to where you're at and meet you with the gentleness you need. For listening. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media, and you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode from our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk. We look forward to connecting with you.